Wrapping up Romans 8 today. We'll be in verses 31 through 39. And if you've got one of those black Bibles from the back, that can be found on page 944. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's God's word. You may be seated. Amen. Let's close in prayer. That's good stuff, huh? Um, that is really good stuff. Well, it's hard to believe we've been in Romans for almost a year now. Have you been enjoying going through the book of Romans? Yeah? Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, we can clap. That's good. Somebody really enjoyed it over there. Um, and even Romans 8 has been fantastic. Uh, theologians, scholars will say that Romans 8 is kind of the, the, the pinnacle of the book of Romans. And this, this passage that we're looking at today is kind of the climax of Romans 8, um, climax of the, the, the gospel that we've been studying so much. Uh, we've, we've heard a lot over this last year, and we've heard a lot over these last few weeks, a lot of just incredible nuggets of truth um, from the book of Romans. I don't think I introduced myself, by the way. I'm Matthew. I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, so hi. Sorry about that. Luke, our, our, fe our fearless leader, is uh, working on, he's doing a thing with our pastoral residency program today, training some, training some of our leaders. So he will be back next week to lead us through this Roots series. But as I was saying, um, in, in the book of Romans, especially in Romans chapter 8, we've had all these incredible nuggets of truth. Here's, here's what we've learned just as we've gone through this chapter in the book of Romans, we've heard that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we have freedom in Christ. We've heard that we've been adopted as sons and daughters into God's family, that this present groaning that we experience in our lives, in our world, is not to be compared with this future glory that is to be ours. We've learned that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And we've also, uh, last week, we looked at this, this unbreakable chain of salvation, these five unbreakable links that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified his kids. Some incredible truth. And what Paul's going to do today, as he kind of summarizes all that he said so far through this book, and all these incredible truths, he's going to zoom out, and he's going to try to show us a 30,000-foot uh, picture of how this all fits together. See, all those different pieces are like little, like puzzle pieces, and, uh, and it's important that we understand how they fit together. How many of you guys have kids that like to, like to play with puzzles? Raise your hand. This, I love interaction, by the way. I'm going to ask you to 
I'm going to ask you to interact with me all throughout this deal today. So just get ready. Buckle up. Um, well, one of my, my three-year-old loves puzzles. He hasn't quite figured out how to, how to pull the puzzle thing off yet, though. Uh, he, he hasn't figured out you've got to look at the front of the box, right, uh, to, to, to fit it all together. So he'll just find a piece that looks like this and a piece that looks like this and start jamming them into each other. And, and when they don't fit, he gets really frustrated and you have to come along. And what Paul's trying to do in this, this passage that we're studying today is show us what the front of the box looks like. He said, hey, you've heard this, and you've heard this, and you've heard this, and you've heard this. How does that all fit together? How does that all make sense in our minds, in our worldview? How do we connect these pieces? And I I just want to say at the outset, there are some incredible truths we're going to look at today. Most of them are a summary of something we've studied so far in this book. But, But it's important for you to know these are truths, these are promises for God's people for those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's not a blanket promise for all of humanity, and yet the call goes out to everyone. And if you're in this room and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, we want you to, we want you to come. We want you to, to trust in him and experience the blessing of, of these promises, the blessing of salvation in him. So I want to say that at the outset because we're going to get into a lot of really good stuff, and it's super important for you to know uh, what camp you're in. So uh, we're, we're just going to dive right in. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Rome, says, What then shall we say to these things? We've heard all kinds of amazing truths. What then, or therefore, or so what? What's the point of all this? Paul is beginning his closing argument. He's beginning to summarize all that he said so far. And he's saying, why does this matter? What do we make of all this? Now, Paul uses an interesting literary device in this section, and that's the, the device of, of asking a question or a rhetorical question. He's going to ask five additional questions after this question. And um, he lived a couple hundred years after a guy named Socrates kind of perfected this method of teaching and debating and arguing. And he's writing to an audience that would have been very familiar with this sort of discussion, this sort of teaching. So he employs, he employs the Socratic method, so to speak, and he asks questions, and he asks questions for a very specific reason. Questions do something in our minds and our hearts that simple, um, simple statements don't, don't necessarily do. Why does Paul ask questions? Well, he asks these questions to do three things. He asks them to engage our minds. When you ask a question, you have to think, what, what is he saying? What is he asking? He asks questions to move our hearts, and he asks questions to draw out the implications of what he's saying, to the implications of his argument, to give us application to these things. So as we zoom out, as we take a look at how all these things we've heard over the last weeks and months fit together, Paul's going to do that by asking us questions. So let's get started. Are are we ready? Are we good? Okay, I'm going to dive right in. Um, The first, the, the next question he asks He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's quite a question. That's quite a question. It's a question that that the church wrestles with. Um, It's something that you hear quoted oftentimes in in church. And so basically, he first wants to engage our mind by by essentially asking this. If the all-powerful God is committed to our good, you can put this up on the screen, Thomas. Um, If the all-powerful God is committed to our good, who or what can thwart his purpose for us? What can ultimately hurt us? Now, in order to understand 
this question, we have to engage our minds and we have to ask another question. We have to ask the question, what does for us mean? If God is for us, we have to understand what he means by for us or we might misinterpret this verse. And sadly, this is common in certain circles today. How is God for us? What is he for, specifically? We've, we actually studied this a few weeks ago. If you look up in verse 29, somebody do this. Look in verse 29 and tell me what is God's purpose for us, according to verse 29. Shout it out. To conform us into the image of his son, to make us more like Jesus. So God is for making us more like Jesus. This means that nothing, the all-powerful God is for this, nothing can stop the good work that God is doing in making us more like Jesus. In fact, God himself would have to be defeated for you to be defeated because God is for you. So that, that engages our mind, but then we transition to kind of thinking this question through our heart. And here's what our heart might say in response. Well, if God is for us, then why do I feel like things are coming against me? He says, who can be against us? I feel like things are coming against me, right? Is that, is that, I mean, I feel that way. I definitely feel that way. So why is that? And the truth is, it's because we're in a battle. See, in verse 35, if you scroll down there a little bit, Paul mentions a number of things that are against him. He mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Later on, he mentions death itself. So Paul isn't saying that, that nothing is against you. He's not saying that no one is against you. He's saying that nothing will go against God's purpose for you. See, this question, the question that he asks, who can be against us, implies the understanding that we all know that things are against us, that, that we fight against certain things and we fight for other things. We all understand that we're engaged in a battle. In fact, this is a universal truth. Everyone understands that this world is broken. It's not the way it should be. Everyone's trying to push against things in their own lives and, and in our society and in our world. I love when the scriptures, what we hear from the scriptures, lines up with just the common theology of man. It's a, it's a window for the gospel into uh, people's lives, people that we, that we meet and we'll talk with. So I like to ask this question, and I want to do it to you right now. Um, turn to your neighbor and, and tell them your favorite movie or your favorite book. Go ahead. Interactive here. Okay. So shout, shout some, some of you shout it out. What is your favorite, what's your favorite movie or your favorite book? Princess Bride. Princess Bride, right on. Okay. What was that? I don't know that one. Okay, but it sounds good. What else? Huh? Forrest Gump. Gladiator. Lord of the Rings. Good. So what do all these, what do all these great stories, come back to me now, come back, come back, come back. <laughs> this is good. What do all these great stories have in common? There's a conflict, right? There's internal conflict. There's external conflict. We are in a battle. And so when our hearts, when we hear, if God is for us, who can be against us? We ask the question, I, I feel like there's a lot against me. So how do we deal with that? How do we reconcile that? Um, well, we're going we're gonna to ask you two questions. And I, again, I want you to, I want you to participate here. Um, I want you to answer the question, what do you feel like you fight against 
in your life currently right now, just write it down on your bulletin or if you have notes or something like that. What do you fight against and what do you fight for? We're all in this battle. We're all fighting a lot of things. Go ahead and just write that down. I want to show you how this verse applies to your life. So I'll give you just a minute to think that through. What are you currently fighting against and what are you currently fighting for? All right. Now, you, you could have said any number of things. Maybe you wrote down the name of a person. Maybe you feel like you're fighting against the government or sickness or poverty or loneliness. Maybe a broken relationship. Maybe you're fighting against your own internal desires or prejudice or depression. The list could go on and on. What's imperative for us to understand as we kind of search through this question about the battle that, that rages around us is that these things, most likely everything you wrote down, is the fruit of, of a deeper problem. Um, our enemy, if, if, if we have a conflict, there's two opposing sides. The enemy, the evil side, the true enemy, as defined by the Bible, is Satan, sin, and death. That's the root. That's the root of all the things that come against us. That's the root of all the problems that we experience. And what God is committed to is rooting out, removing the root of evil, and that will ultimately remove the fruit as well. And he's done that on the cross, and he's doing that through the gospel and through the work of his people. And so if, you know, if we've, got, we've got a fruit tree in our backyard, we've actually got several. If I, if I didn't like the fruit and I went out and cut all the fruit off the tree, what would happen the next year? When, in the spring, it would all come back, right? And so we so often are concerned with removing the fruit, the, the fruit of evil, and that's, those are good pursuits. That's, that's a godly pursuit to push back the effects of the fall, and God's doing that through his people. But he's, even more than that, he's rooting out the root. He's trying to destroy the root of that. Um, so now what do you fight for? So you, you hopefully wrote this down as well, the things you find yourself pushing towards. Um, maybe it's a cause or an ideology, a religion, a tradition. Maybe your reputation or your own wellness. Maybe your fight for your family, your safety, your happiness. Again, these are, these are good things, but they're fruit. They're not the root. The root of the good side of this battle, the root of the evil side is Satan, sin, and death. The root of the good side is the triune God of the Bible. James 1 tells us this. It says, all good and perfect things come down from God, right? And he the root, he is the root of all good things, all that we desire. So he's, he's removing the root of evil in the hearts of his children, and he's planting himself, the root of all that is good, in his people. And as his people fills the earth, and as we grow, we push back the effects of the fall, and we see that God will one day complete that work when Jesus returns, and, and it will be all good. But we live in this interesting place right now in time. We live between um, D-Day and V-Day, so to speak. How many of you are familiar with World War II? And, and D-Day was this day that the Allied forces, we, they rushed the, the beaches of Normandy and, and had this great victory and effectually had won the war at that time. And yet there were still pockets of resistance all around that, that needed, they still needed troops on the ground, they still needed bombs to be dropped, they still needed to to extinguish these pockets of resistance. And yet, functionally, strategically, the battle had been won between D-Day and V-Day. That's, 
our current position in Christ. The battle has been won. Satan, sin, and death are defeated, and yet, and yet God's still allowing that to continue as he, as he collects his people and as he does his work and as he makes us more like Jesus. And so the things that come against us, the things that this verse mentions, Satan, sin, and death ultimately will not be victorious. And indeed in Christ, they have no power over you. They have been defeated and they will be defeated. So the implication of this first question that Paul asks is this. The all-powerful God is committed to our good and nothing can thwart his purpose for us. That means we can live without fear. We can have great confidence, and we can trust and follow God even when it's painful. And it will be painful. It was for Paul. He listed that in verse 35. We looked at that. So let's move on now to the second question that he asks in summarizing all that we've heard so far. The second question in verse 32, he says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's think logically about this. Let's engage our minds first. Paul says this, if God paid the ultimate price for us, go ahead and throw this up there too, Thomas. Thanks, man. Uh, Why should we worry about his willingness to provide for our needs and wants? Fairly logical, right? God knows we desire the good things, the things we fight for that we mentioned earlier. God gave us the highest and most valuable thing in all of existence for us. Think of that. He paid the highest price. The second person of the Trinity he gave to ransom his people. God gave the, uh, and, and why would he not, inv- then, if he's invested so much, why would he not continue to invest to finish the job? So think of this. When have you spent uh, a significant amount of money on something? And I'm talking money you earned. Not money you borrowed from somebody else to buy something, which, which is what we typically do now. But money that you earned. Maybe you bought a house with your own money or a car. Maybe you invested in an education. Maybe you spent a lot of money pursuing the right person, right? A spouse. Maybe you spent a lot of money raising kids. I know that's very expensive, and you don't just spend money. You spend time um, and effort and energy. Well, all of those things that you invest in, Don't you continue to invest in them to keep them nice? You buy the car, you wash it, right? Um, You have a kid, you you invest. Uh, A year and a half ago, about, uh, we were at our annual checkup or our regular checkup. I don't know if we do them annually or not, but we brought the kids to the dentist, right? One one of the joys and privileges of a parent is dental care. And uh, our oldest sat down in the chair, and she popped open her mouth, and the dentist looked in and said... I think it's time. He said the words every parent dreads to hear. It's time to make an appointment with the orthodontist. So, yeah, oh, I hear the groans. So we did that. We went in, and, and sure enough, she sat down. They took a look, and they said, yeah, I think, I think we're going to need to move some things around. I think we're going to need to make some adjustments in there. And, um, and you know, that has a price tag. And so what, what did we do as parents when they said, hey, it's going to cost this much? Did we go back and look over our ledger and add up all the expenses that we've spent so far on, on Bethany, food, clothing, shelter, and go, oh, we've hit the limit. Sorry. Sorry, we've, we're maxed out. We can't put any more. We, you know, it's sunk cost at this point, finance principle. No. Good parents, we, we opened up our checkbook and rewrote the check, right? Um, we've invested so much because we love her. She's valuable to us. 
And we, as our family, we, we want her to have straight teeth. Now, if you don't, my wife wanted me to say this. If you don't value straight teeth in your family, that's fine. That's not a judgment call. It's an, here, we love all types of teeth at this church. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. But, I mean, it, 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 it's the principle of this verse. We've invested a lot. We're going to continue. We're going to finish the job. Parents know what's best and they provide it. Now, kids don't always appreciate this. I mean, we had several discussions in which she tried her best, and she's a very good arguer, to convince us that she didn't really want straight teeth. She didn't need it, and she certainly didn't want to go through the pain that, that it required to, to get there. Um, it, it, it often is painful, but good parents, and we try, we're certainly not that all the time, but we try, good parents know what's best for their kids, and they're willing uh, to, to make sure that happens, even when it's, even when it's painful. Our goals as parents, in our position with the knowledge that we have, are better than our kids' goals a lot of times. And it's just the same way with God. He's completing the work that he began, the work of of perfecting and conforming the image of his son in us. That is our deepest need. And in that finished state, we will be able to appreciate the value of what he's done. That's, that's our confidence. And so that's, our, that's kind of the mind part of this question. Let's examine the heart part of this question. The heart might say this, what if my desires don't match up with God's plan for me? What if I desire something different than what God offers me? All right, we have this guarantee that he's going to graciously give us all things, but it's according to his, his parently, parental decision of what, what we need and what we want. What if what I want doesn't match up with what he wants? Well, let's explore that a little bit because that's a very real question that we all have. What do you desire? Let me just ask you that. You can write that down again. You can just hold it in your mind. You can think of something. What's the thing that you're, you're thinking about a lot during the day? Maybe you think about it before you go to bed. You think about it when you wake up in the morning. What's the thing on your mind that you'd really, really desire? And why do you desire it? It's really important to ask yourself why. Um, I'll be transparent here, and I'll tell you, and this, this is exposed how shallow I really am. Right now, I really want a Jeep. <laughs> right? I mean, Jeeps are cool. Everybody's got a Jeep, it seems like. I, I never realized this until I decided I wanted one. Now I'm, I drive down the road, and everybody's driving a Jeep. Dale just bought a Jeep just to rub it in my face. <laughs> um, but I want a Jeep, so, I, so I, I tried a couple of months ago to figure out how to make that happen and realized it probably just financially wasn't the most practical decision. We have a family of five kids. Jeeps have four seats, so. Um, plus, my wife and I make seven. So anyway, we, we're, the Jeep thing's probably not going to happen, but, but it's important. So that's the desire. It's important to ask yourself, why, why do you want whatever it is that you want? And the reason I think I want it is Jeeps represent some things that I'd love to have in my stage of life right now. They represent freedom, right? They represent adventure and options. You don't have to stay on the road. You can go off wherever you want. Um, now, maybe, maybe you are a little more serious than I am. Maybe the things that you desire are things like happy and successful kids. And why might you desire that? Well, maybe it's because you want to have an impact on the future generation. You want a, a legacy. You want to have that reputation, that family name carry on. Maybe it's, it's as simple as, I desire a happy marriage. And what a great and godly desire. The reason you desire that is you desire relational intimacy. You desire connection. Well, whatever it is that you desire, 
when you understand the underlying reasons, you'll understand that those desires, those wants, those needs are most, are first and most perfectly met in your relationship with God. And so if he were to give you some of those things that you want and allow you to have your desires met for a time imperfectly in those and not in him, he'd actually be a bad parent. So he has promised to give you all things, and he will, but he might not give them in the order that you desire, and it might not be what you think is best, but it's certainly what he thinks is best. His primary blessing is to make us more like Jesus. That's what he's promised. And in the day of our glorification, which is signed, sealed, and delivered, we heard about it last week, those whom he called, he justified, and justified, he glorified, we will have our desires, every single one of them, fully met in him. That's a good promise. So the implication of this argument is this. God spares no expense for his kid's blessing. He spares no expense. And so we can have these three things in our lives right now. If we understand this truth, we can have contentment, we can have hope, and we can be generous. We can be a generous people. We can have contentment because we know in Christ all, all of those desires are, are met. We have hope because we, we're certain that that day is, is coming. And we can be generous because God has been so generous to us in Christ. All right, third question. Moving on. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That means God's people. It is God who justifies First, this question speaks to our mind. The Apostle Paul says, who can stand in God's place and judge you? God alone is the judge, and he has declared you right. This verse says, it's God who justifies. That word justify is, is the same word that, that speaks of uh, uh, to make right or to declare righteous. God doesn't just judge us innocent. He, ju- he judges us righteous uh, based on what Christ has done. So there's only one judge. There's only one person whose argument matters here, and that's God. Paul's saying that if God alone decides who's right and who's wrong, then obviously only his opinion matters. He's the one and only judge. And we know from verse, 20, or verse 30, again from last week, that God has declared us righteous. Those whom he called, he justified. He said, you're good. You're righteous. I view you the way I view Jesus. Now, this question is also interesting, and it speaks to another universal truth that everyone knows and everyone accepts, whether they realize it or not. We all know there's a judge. We all believe that we need to justify ourselves in some way, shape, or form. Even people who deny the existence of God feel compelled to justify why they feel that way. They feel like there's a judge in their lives. Um, just, just, you can experience this in your circle of friends. Whenever someone in your circle of friends does something that maybe is a little different than, than what uh, is typical in your social network, they'll feel a need to kind of justify it. Like maybe they buy a car that's a little, let's be on a car theme, maybe, maybe they buy a car that's a little nicer than like what, what people in your group of friends typically drive. They're going to they're gonna feel like, oh, I got to, I gotta, you know, they're going to want to justify it a little bit, m- more than likely. We got a good interest rate or, you know, we had some money saved away or we got a really good deal. Or maybe, maybe it's the way they, they dress or the school choice or whatever it is. People feel compelled to justify themselves. Why is this? We all know in our hearts that there's a judge. Maybe it's uh, friends that you're trying to impress or, or justify yourself to, or parents, maybe a coworker, 
Maybe you're just trying to live up to the, the standard that the media sets for what a, a typical family should look like, a happy person should be like. Or maybe it's some standard you've imposed on yourself. We all feel like there's a judge, and this verse tells us that God is the judge, and he has justified us. You are as guilt-free before God as Jesus himself. So that's our mind. Let's move to the heart. How does this question engage our heart? Um, Well, we might ask this question, and this is a common question. If God has justified me, if that's true, then why do I still feel so guilty? It's very common that, that we feel guilty. In fact, if, if you ask enough questions to almost anybody, you're going you're gonna to bump into this reality. And so I would, I would ask you this, and this is another exercise we can engage with. When you feel guilty, uh, when, when do you feel guilty? What, what's the cause of it? When do you feel like there's a charge against you? Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, lots of people, lots of things bring a charge against me. When is that for you personally? Is it when you feel like you failed as a parent or a spouse? Maybe it's a moral failure. Maybe it's when you've had harsh words of anger or you're, you feel a charge because of your laziness. Maybe you've disappointed someone or you feel like you're not giving or serving enough. What this verse says is those things don't justify you. They don't justify you. God alone justifies you. And then this question, who makes you feel guilty? So that's what makes you feel guilty. Who makes you feel guilty? It may be uh, another person in your life that has a, a standard that you can't seem to meet. Maybe it's your own standard. Maybe it's yourself. Or maybe it's, it's something demonic. Satan and demons, I mean, that's, that's his role. That's what the Bible says. He's an accuser. He likes to accuse us. Um, well, again, this tells us that those people don't justify you. They have no claim against you. So the implication of this third question is this. God is the one and only judge. Only his opinion matters, and no one but, ju- but God can judge you. No one but ju- God can judge me. We're going to continue to kind of think through this idea in this next question that Paul asks in verse 34. Look at it with me. He says, Who is to condemn Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, he is inter- or who is interceding for us. Excuse me, Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Paul says this, he, he engages with our mind, and he says, Jesus is the only one who can stand in God's courtroom, and he stands in our defense. That's pretty amazing. That's good news. Is there anyone who can overrule God's judgment? No. Is there anyone or anything that can stand in God's courtroom based on this verse and condemn you? No. Jesus is our perfect advocate in the courtroom of heaven. He died for us, and the judgment and the verdict has been issued and paid. God has declared us righteous based on his work alone. He stands at the right hand of the Father. This is what's so cool about this verse. He's actively interceding on our behalf like a good defense attorney. How many of you um, get into like TV drama stuff like Netflix and Amazon Prime stuff you can stream? Raise your hands. Make me feel like I'm not alone. Great. 
So we've recently gotten into a show called The Good Wife. Have anybody heard of The Good Wife? Yeah, it was recommended to me by another, another pastor at Redemption. I really like it. It's, it's entertaining. It's different than anything we've really been into in the past. And it's kind of this crime drama, courtroom drama thing. Um, and, and I've learned a lot about the legal profession by watching this show. I'm sure none of it is really accurate. Um, but it's fun. It's fun to watch. You know, they're attorneys and they do their thing. And one of the things I've learned, and I think this is true. My dad's sitting back there. He can tell me if this is true or not. He's an attorney. Um, one of the things I've learned is that not anybody can just sue you and take you to court. They have this thing called a pretrial hearing where both sides come and stand before the judge. And they have to, they kind of are, the, the, the prosecution has to show that they have enough merit to bring a case against you, right? There, there has to be some witness or some evidence or something to indicate that, that you should actually be on trial. And what this verse establishes, what this tells us, is that in the pretrial hearing, there are no witnesses that can stand against you, and there's no evidence that the prosecution can present. So not only are you declared not guilty, there's not even a trial, because Christ has taken it away. He's completely eliminated it. They can't stand. No prosecution can stand against you in God's courtroom. Jesus is actively interceding as our defense attorney on our behalf. Good news, huh? Really good news. So the implication of this question is that Jesus is the only one who can stand in God's courtroom. He stands in our defense. So this means three things in our lives as we understand it. As it connects with our minds and sinks into our hearts, it means freedom There's no law that binds you. You're under grace. It means rest. And this is a big one for me. Um, There's no one to impress, and there's nothing to prove. It's not a competition. I I see everything through the lens of a competition. It's very hard to not compare and and try to impress. Um, And so that's, that's good news. We can rest. And then lastly, we can have a real relationship. We can experience real relationship because we can be honest. We're not trying to prove anything or impress anything. We can truly be known because we can put our guard down and experience what it means to truly be human, to be connected in real relationship with God and with others. So the last question here that Paul uh, brings us to in this incredible argument is this question. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So he's saying this. Let's, let's throw this up here. We've looked at a lot of things. He's saying if we understand that the all-powerful God is committed to our good and nothing can thwart his purpose, if we understand that God spares no expense for his kids, if we understand that God is the only judge and he has declared you righteous, and if we understand that Jesus is the only one who can stand in God's courtroom and he stands in our defense, then, based on that, what can possibly keep us from God's love? Answer? Nothing. No one. Not Satan's sin or death. Not circumstances in or out of our control. Not our own bad choices. Not someone else's evil or negligence. Not a tragic act of nature. Not a self-destructive habit. Not the worst thing you can imagine. Not even death itself. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So that might make sense logically in our minds, but what does our heart say? Let's look at this. Our heart might ask this question, is this really good news? I mean, if God's love allows for our suffering, sometimes in unfathomably painful ways, 
is that a love we should even want? Now, that's a really good question. That's a question that people have wrestled with for a long time. And to, to answer it, I think it's really important that we define terms. We need to understand what love means. And to do that, I want to go to a, a cultural illustration that I thought was pretty good uh, on the definition of love. That our society defines love in all sorts of crazy ways. The Bible's definition of love is very clear. And I was, I was impressed with this movie. Uh, how many of you have seen Frozen, the Disney movie, right? Yeah, our girls love it. They're in here right now. Um, we're singing the songs like ad nauseum in our house. Um, but, but they did a really good job on this one of answering the question of what love is. So take a look at this. So this is heat. I love it. Ooh, but don't touch it. So, where's Hans? What happened to your kiss? I was wrong about him. It wasn't true love. But we ran all the way here. Please, Olaf, you can't stay here. You'll melt. I am not leaving here until we find some other act of true love to save you. Do you happen to have any ideas? I don't even know what love is. That's okay. I do. Love is putting someone else's needs before yours, like... You know, how Kristoff brought you back here to Hans and left you forever. Kristoff loves me? Wow, you really don't know anything about love, do you? Olaf, you're melting. Some people are worth melting for. You're just maybe not right this second. All right, so did you catch it? Definition of true love, putting someone else's needs above your own, that's pretty good. That's what we see in the Bible. That's what we see in the <clears throat> example of Jesus. He gives himself away for his people. So here's my definition of, of true love. I believe it represents the Bible's general kind of trajectory on this issue. It's a commitment to give oneself away for the betterment and the blessing of the beloved. It's not self-seeking. So let's read this definition into the end of our passage here in verse 39. <coughs> Excuse me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He, he goes on, he, he mentions all these things, and he says, nothing of these, none of these things will be able to separate us from the, and then let's read our definition in, from God's commitment to give himself away for our betterment and our blessing in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is exactly the promise that we can have confidence in. So the question then needs to be asked, what is for, what is our, leads to our betterment and our blessing? What is the best thing for us? What is God fiercely committed to in his love for us? And the answer is a restored relationship with God. This is the thing that we were originally created for, this is the source of life through which all the other good things that we want flow downstream. Psalm 16 says this. I, I love this verse. Take a look at this. It says, uh, the psalmist is speaking to God. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In a relationship with God, in his presence, at his right hand, we experience fullness of joy 
We experience all, all the desires that we have, all the needs that we have are fully and completely met in him. So what is God doing? What is he committed to to relentlessly show us his love? He's committed to restoring our relationship with him. And how does he do that? He roots out evil in our hearts. He plants himself the root of all good things. He's committed to making us more and more like Jesus, to growing us in our relationship with him. And as we grow in our relationship with him, we experience fullness of joy. We experience the life that he created us to experience. So one last quote here. Uh, St. Augustine said this. I love this. This is on my auto-signature at Gmail. Um, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's the ultimate promise. That's the certainty that you have as a follower of Jesus, that he has and will continue to restore and build your relationship with him. And through that relationship, all the other desires in your life are met. So the implication of this final question, nothing can separate us from God's loving plan to draw us into a growing relationship with himself, the source of our betterment and blessing. It's God himself that allows us to experience comfort. It allows us to experience peace. It allows us to experience deep and abiding joy, even through the storms of life, even through the difficulties. These things are untouchable for you if you're a Christian. Let's pray and thank God for that truth. Lord, we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. And we thank you for restoring and bringing us into a relationship with you, the source of life and the source of all joy. And we pray that we would grow up to be more like Jesus so we could experience more of that relationship, more of the life that you designed, that we would, you, you, you desired that we would live. God, we love you. We thank you for these truths. Please encourage our hearts with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.